I'm Matt Williams, and you're listening to the Wild Voices Project. Today, I'm speaking to Melissa Harrison, author, photographer, and freelance writer. So I'm going to start how I always start, which is by asking whether or not nature and wildlife were an important part of your childhood. Yes, very much so. Um, I wasn't one of those children that uh, is a, a birder or joined clubs or things like that, but um, we all had a very outdoor childhood. Um, I'm the youngest of six, and we grew up uh, in a, a quite ramshackle, falling down, but large house. Obviously, with six children, it needs to be quite large. Um, with a large garden and mum just wanted us out of her hair mostly so we were kind of chased outside um, she would tap away on her typewriter she was, uh, she, she was a writer and we would roam the garden and the local fields and woods um, as far as the village pretty much by ourselves all day which is something that you know, as I'm sure you'll discover from other people is pretty much gone now mm. yeah even well I don't know how typical I was, but even by my age, and I'm 30, that was, you know, that was not the done thing. Yeah, I mean, partly it's it's stranger danger, and part of it is uh, is traffic as well. I mean, you know, there wasn't that there weren't that many cars around in the way that there are now mm. um, when I was growing up. So it was more of a backdrop. It wasn't a um, it wasn't an active pursuit in a in a in a very di- nature directed way. It was just something I took for granted. And uh, we spent our summers um, in Dartmoor, which is where my mother's mother lived. Um, and those were some of the happiest times, um, being away from home and, and all of us being together, because most of the time we, we weren't in the house together, there was too many of us and we were too spread out. Um, but we'd go on these holidays and they, you know, they felt really idyllic and we would uh, tramp the, the moor in all weathers. You know, there was no staying in if it was wet, um, with Dad uh, kind of... Um, pushing us on and uh, his usual cry was rise above it which I hated him for at the time but I'm really glad of now actually because it taught me that um, you can be uncomfortable and it doesn't kill you Mm. and that's a really good lesson to have as an adult you can put yourself in inconvenient situations where you're going to get wet or you're going to get tired or you're going to get hungry and you know, you can choose not to let that stop you doing the thing you want to do. Yeah, nature can nature or being outdoors or being in the elements can like test your boundaries in lots of different ways yeah. and give you a, give you a kind of resi- resilience. Absolutely, grit, and it the rewards of it are not rewards that you would get otherwise. You can't stay in and do it. Mm. it it's an either or thing. So if you you know if you want to if you want to to climb the tour or you want to swim around the cove or whatever you have to put up with a certain amount of risk and a certain amount of uncomfortableness, usually. Mm. Um, and that's a really good lesson. I, I, I worry about kids not learning that these days. I've got a friend, um, someone I know on Twitter, who does work with schools, um, leading nature walks, and he described um, taking a group of kids out and one of them didn't have a waterproof coat because he said, well, my mum doesn't let me go out in the rain. So why would he have one? Mm, and that yeah. I find completely heartbreaking. Yeah, that's really sad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's already like sparked off lots of li- little threads that I want to follow in my head. 
Um, but um, I think I'm going to try and stick to kind of questions that I've thought of because I think hopefully it'll take us through a nice little mm. little journey. So I did want to ask about, you allude to in some of your writing to um, a couple of maybe slightly trickier periods in your life, so being bullied as a child mm. and then you allude a couple of times to um, having a bit of a difficult time during your 20s. Was nature, was being outdoors kind of an escape for you during those periods? Did it provide, did it help you in any way or do you think, like you said already, it was just kind of there as a backdrop? Um, that's a difficult question to answer because I think it did help me but I don't know if I was conscious of that at the time mm. so I don't think it was a you know I will go and find comfort in nature Yeah. but it it was an instinct that, that drove some of my behaviour I think um, when I was little I I fled from loneliness and it, you know being when I talk about being one of six children, people always say, oh, it must have been wonderful, so many of you all playing together. And it wasn't like that at all, because the others were all very close in age, and then there was a five-year gap, and then there was me. So mm. much of my childhood, um, you know, I, I didn't have people around who were my age, and, and the latter part of my childhood, I, I spent as lonely child because the others had left. Um, and going to school and being a, a clever child, uh, and a child that didn't have the right clothes or the right didn't you know go on foreign holidays didn't you know didn't fit in in lots of different ways being very short um, having glasses and then braces you know it's a succession of things I didn't really stand a chance um, and it led to me creating very um, vivid uh, imaginative worlds and I look back now and I find it a bit heartbreaking but it, it didn't feel like that at the time because I didn't allow myself to know how bad it was. Um, but I look back now and I realise the worlds I created were worlds in which I was accepted and special. So they were worlds in which the trees were uh, conscious and were pleased when I arrived. So I'd go to the woods and they didn't like the other children but they liked me because I'm special and I understand now what I was doing there. I was mm. creating a world in which I was acceptable. Um, and yes, that does break my heart a little bit, but it, 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 it was bad at the time, but I didn't really know it. Um, and similarly, in my mid-twenties, I found myself uh, living in London and, and very unhappy. Um, and I didn't realise that part of it was the lack of the natural world around me. Um, I was living, my first place was in uh, Dalston, which is very cool now and wasn't at all at the time. It was just dreadful, um, and there were no trees at all. There was nothing green I could have any contact with. Um, I remember the, the flat had a, a steel-lined front door, and if uh, the electricity meter ran out, you had to go across to the garage to put more, more money on it. And I remember sitting in in the dark, because I was frightened to go out. Mm. It was not a good place to be. And uh, I was in an unhappy relationship, and eventually, I, I don't know where the idea came from, but I decided to go back to, to Dartmoor, where I had been so happy as a child. And I went back by myself and stayed with a, a, in a B&B in Widdicombe in the Moor with an elderly couple who were quite worried about me, I think, and wanted to take me in, which was a bit alarming. Um, but were very sweet and drove me around in their little 2CV and dropped me off so I could do walks on, on Dartmoor. And I remember the enormous sense of... Um, 
surprise really that it was still there. It felt like somewhere that was so connected to childhood that it mm. must have disappeared when I grew up. I couldn't believe that I could just go there. I was allowed. It felt magical almost. Um, and so after that point, I began going back to Dartmoor more regularly and it, it's still, you know, it, it looms quite large in, in my life and my husband's life. And he's, last week, took some friends there and they went camping and they loved it. And so, you know, it ripples outwards. Yeah, I have a similar connection to, not Dartmoor, I've never been there, but to other places from growing up where you go back there and it almost transport, transports you back in time a little bit because yes. of that connection that you've got to the place. Yes, and you just, you just think, surely this, this you know, disappeared in a puff of smoke when I, as I got older. How can it still be here and I, I'm still allowed to go there? It's, it's extraordinary. I think it's really interesting, um, your choice of the word still allowed. Um, so you're, you know, you're a, a very accomplished writer these days. Um, and for me, having read some of your books over the past past week or so, um, I felt like a lot of what your writing is speaking about is about um, about challenging society's rules and about people who try to try to challenge the conventions that become ingrained and that restrict us and restrict our worlds. Do you think that's true? Yes, um, I like to write about outsiders, and I like to. Um, I like to try and challenge uh, people's judgments about who people are and I like to try and undermine ideas of the norm. Um, there are judgments that we come to collectively that seem very, very true and that are very comforting to join in with and we all do it, I do it just as much as anyone else, um, but very often they have absolutely no basis. And they work to create in-groups and out-groups and to make people in the in-group feel better. And um, I imagine this relates to the experience of being bullied. Um, and also, you know, to, to a lot of other experiences since then of, of going to Oxford and being a, um, somebody there that had come from a state school and not feeling as though I fitted in there. Um, being the youngest child in a, in a family of six who are all so much older, you know, it's, it's a... A motif that repeats and repeats and has gone from being a weakness to a strength, I think, because it allows me to um, try to imaginatively inhabit other people's lives and then um, perhaps have a foot in both camps. Mm -hmm. And um, I think my goal is to help help people live for a moment imaginatively in, in both worlds. And, and I think once you do that, it's very hard to make those firm judgments about people anymore. And for me, I, I, when I was reading, I saw you drawing parallels as well between the way that stories allow us to explore people who are outsiders and people who are pushing up against or maybe even stepping beyond the rules. And also animals and characters, characters within, your, within your writing, which are creatures, who also are kind of your human characters are sort of amazed that the animals are allowed to just do what they want and no one's telling them what to do. Yeah, um, I try to move away from an anthropocentric point of view um, in which humans are the only important uh, life forms um, and animals are a sort of backdrop. And I, I try to portray a world where lots of things are happening at once 
and they're all equally important. Um, and it, it can happen in quite subtle ways. So you have a scene with several characters, and when the characters have left the, the scene, wherever they are, um, just spending a moment talking about the, the, the birds or the wildlife that, that might still be there and that still persist, instead of assuming that a scene ends when humans stop talking. Um, and I would love to say that was my own invention, but I, I think it came to me from reading Brian Carter, uh, who wrote A Black Fox Running, um, who's a wonderful Devon author, died quite recently. Um, and A Black, Black Fox Running, for all its, its many faults, um, or perhaps what, perhaps not faults, but things that, that make it quite challenging. It's got talking foxes. Um, the foxes approve of fox hunting. They think it's a good death. You know, there are things about it that are hard for modern readers. But it, it, it had absolutely that sense that um, we are we are some of the actors on the stage, but not all of them. Mm. I, I think um, for me, actually, the way you just described it, it reminds me of... It doesn't work in quite exactly the same way. It reminds me of that middle chapter of To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, where she describes the, the Ramsey's house with no one living there, but mm. the objects in it and the furniture and the house itself and the elements around it are all still alive, whilst there's no, yes. there's no narrator there to witness it. None of the characters are actually present. Yes, things present. persist. Things persist. And uh, it's, it's one of the early things that toddlers learn, isn't it? That object, object permanency. Mm. But we don't seem to have learnt it very well with the natural world. Um, we seem to see everything in relation to ourselves. So... Animals are either a pest, or they are, you know, you know, helpful like bees, or they are um, cute or, or ugly. But all, we always see them in human terms. We find it very hard to um, to really believe that they exist for themselves and for no other reason. You know, there's that childish question: What are wasps for? Well, well what are you for? You know. Yeah. Um, who are some of the writers who have influenced you you most? Oh, um, that's a difficult question. At the moment, I'm unhealthily obsessed with Alice Oswald, um, as I think a lot of people are. Um, I find she makes me want to make everything and also stop making anything because there's no point, because she's doing it already. Um, <laughs> So she's terrifying and brilliant at the same time. But she's dangerous in a way because her voice is so particular that if I spend too much time reading her and listening to her, it seeps in to my own writing. And there is nothing worse than being a pale imitation of someone else. So mm -hmm. I have to treat her with caution. Um, similarly, John McGregor, who... I read um, his first book just before, or a couple of years before I wrote Clay, and it was a real um, permission giver. It was a book that was intensely descriptive, but didn't have a, um, I mean, it did, it did have a plot, but it didn't have a, a sort of action-packed plot of, you can sum it up, of, you know, a story arc in three parts and all of that stuff. Um, and I remember reading it and going, oh, he's written my book. <laughs> um, and that was great. It was, it was alarming. Um, but then it allowed me to believe that 
there might be a place for the kind of writing I wanted to do. So that was important. But then there's, you know, there's lots of other writers. I mean, God, Martin Amos has had a huge fall from grace, but, um, but I loved his, his early books, the exuberance of his language. Um, and then there's all the nature writers, which you know, I began to discover around 2007, 2008 with Kathleen Jamie and, and then uh, Mark Cocker and Rob McFarlane and Roger Deakin and then going back to you know, the worm forgives the plough and Jeffries and Thomas and it just exploded and that, that, you know, that felt like um, finding a room in a house that you didn't know was there before that had everything you needed in it. <laughs> And you, have I got this right, you did this period of avoiding reading fiction so as it didn't... Yes, um, yes. When I'm writing fiction, I find it hard to read fiction, although I'm getting better at it now, um, partly because I'm more sure of my own voice, Yeah. and um, partly because now I work as a book reviewer, and so it's quite hard. (laughs) (laughs) Not to read fiction. So, um, but you know, I'm, I'm, I've turned down some fiction recently and taken on some non-fiction because I'm writing at the moment. So I can, do, I can do it a bit, but it's something I have to be careful about, especially if it's really good. If it's bad, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but good stuff can pull me away from um, the work that I need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and in one of your blogs, I think it was quite a short piece that you written for a website somewhere, I forget where it was, you, you write about... A moment when you recognise the difference between wanting to be a writer and wanting to write. Mm. Would you be able to say a little bit more about that distinction? Yeah, I spent so long um, wanting to be a writer, desperately wanting to be a writer, and in fact, um, you know, this sounds overdramatic, but this is exactly what it what it was like. I felt as though um, there was no point in me being alive if I couldn't do it, and. Obviously, that is far too great a weight to give anything, really, because it becomes, um, when things are that important, it's far better not to do them, not to try. Because if you try and you can't do it, Mm. you've gambled and lost everything. So um, I completely terrified myself and couldn't do anything at all. Um, And was intensely miserable for over a decade. And then it, it was... It was a letter I'd, a dreadful letter I think, I'd written to Jeanette Winterson saying, I can't write and I don't know what to do, you've got to help me. Um, and she actually wrote back, which is just a miracle really. And she said, you, she said, there are no writing courses, there's no classes, there's nothing that can help you. You need to find your burning bush. And, you know, biblical imagery, very typical of her. And I kind of looked at it and didn't really understand what she meant at the time. And it was when I moved to South London and had a garden and had a dog, because I, I had a garden, um, and then started taking the dog out and walking her, uh, which meant discovering all these little parks and green spaces and commons that I didn't know were there. And then starting to see them change over the seasons and developing, kind of unbeknownst to me really, a connection to urban nature that I didn't think London could offer me. Mm. Um, it was uh, it was a, a moment of um, transformation, really, and I wanted to suddenly realised I wanted to share that with other people that I had something that I wanted to say, and that that was the key that unlocked the door. That was the reason for writing Clay was um, I wanted to connect people to what was around them, and I realised that fiction, um, although it did start out initially as, as a series of, of non-fiction sort of sketches. 
that weren't really going anywhere. Um, you know, fiction can get to people in a way that non-fiction can't always because stories are so powerful and people connect emotionally to stories. Um, and I knew there were people that would pick up a novel that would probably not pick up a book that said, um, here's some urban nature, it's really nice, you should have a look at it. So that became the reason for Clay and then the reason for everything else that's happened since. Mm. Um, going back to your your struggle to struggling with feeling like you weren't able to write, is that a little bit what you what you mean when you wrote don't want to pick out too many individual lines from things you've written, but when you wrote um, that not writing is as or writing is as painful as not writing. When did I say that? I do find writing horribly painful, um, and I don't enjoy it at all. Um, I find it... When I hear about writers who are, you know, it's all just flowing and they're having a wonderful time <laughs> and it's so much fun, and I just can't understand it. I can't... It's, it's not like that for me at all. It's, um, it's painful, and there's, I would rather do almost anything else... Um, I have to force myself to my desk on a writing day. I will walk the dog, go to the shop, clean the bath, you know, do everything, everything I can think of rather than write. Um, sometimes it feels like, you know, when you see a horse refuse a jump and you see the rider urge it and urge it and urge it towards the jump and it just bridles at the last minute and pulls away. And it feels like that. I can sit there and open the Word document and sit there and go, right, come on, come on, come on, and then I'll look at Twitter. Um, <laughs> I hate it. I, it feels like holding a hand on a hot radiator and burning your hand and then having to put it back again and again and again. I don't like it at all. And I, the reason I talk about that and the reason I am honest about it, which it's, I think can, can sound alarming to people sometimes, is that for every person that's a bit alarmed and disappointed to hear that, there's someone else, usually at the back of the room when I do events, who will find that incredibly encouraging because I certainly used to think that it must be really enjoyable to be a writer. And if it was this hard and horrible, it meant that I couldn't do it and that it surely must be a signal to stop trying. Mm. Um, so I, I, I talk about it in that way because I think I, I, it isn't, it clearly isn't a signal to stop trying and, and in some people I would never legislate for everyone but in some people it can be a signal that you're on the right track because um, who was it that said it's a, your, your imagination is, a, is like a compost heap and you have to go where it's hottest I think it was Graham Greene um, but yes you put everything on the compost heap and it heats up and you, you, you go where it's hottest and it, it, it does hurt mm. I think I find it hugely encouraging. Good. I think I'm one of those people. Good. I wouldn't consider myself a writer or even to be doing much writing that's of importance, but I know that feeling not just with everyday procrastination at my, you know, in my day job, but with the really big projects that I consider important to me outside of work that I want to get done. The stuff that matters. The stuff that matters. Stuff, stuff like this, for example. Yeah, I can turn out journalism of... quite easily, but it's the stuff that I feel uh, represents me. It's very hard to put out into the world. Mm. It's terrifying. Yeah, you're scared of 
I find that I'm scared of either not being able to do it or of what people will think of it. And both of those big growling things kind of hold you back. Absolutely. And you can always find other Absolutely. stuff to do. And it's not, I have to say, it's not getting any easier for me. Um, and that is, I imagine, both encouraging and, and not encouraging. Um, you know, it'd be nice just to say, oh, yes, I've got over all that now. It's, it's fine. Um, but the fact is, it, it, it's still like that, but I'm still doing it. So keep doing it. Mm. Um, with clay specifically, um, it didn't. It didn't come across to me. I mean, you've just said you know you, you wrote it for people who wouldn't necessarily pick up a book about urban wildlife and then go out and look for it. It very much came across to me when I was reading it as this is not. This is not necessarily nature writing as I would initially think of it. If someone said nature writing to me, I wouldn't necessarily think of a narrative like that. And yet, I identified very, very strongly, particularly with TC, who, you know, goes off and investigates animals and tracks and all that sort of stuff, um, and struggles with no one around him being interested in wildlife in quite the same way. Um, Would you describe yourself as a nature writer, or do you think I'm right in saying that there's a bit of a difference between something like clay and what people might more conventionally consider to be nature writing? Um, I have no interest in the term nature writing and use it as little as possible. Um, I think that it's a useful term for booksellers and publicists and people who um, need to lump books together. But when you look at the books that are actually usually given that label, they are so vastly different from each other. Um, You know, there's memoir, there's poetry, there's biography, there's... Um, you know, botany and zoology, you know, the the properly knowledgeable stuff. there's psychogeography, there's travel writing, you know. I, I understand that there are um, threads in common and that those threads relate in some way to nature, but my concern is that there is um, such interest in defining it at the moment that it becomes a case of it being um, gatekeepered. So what I want to avoid is a situation where there is a definition of what isn't, what isn't nature writing and thereby who is and who isn't a nature writer. It's happening already and I think it's unhelpful. Um, I think that at the moment any genre or type of writing or type of art becomes static, it begins to die and I don't want that to happen. So as far as I'm concerned, the more um, it changes and grows and the more new voices and the more different approaches the better. Um, without giving too much away, the ending of Clay, I think, reminded me, at least at the moment of reading it, quite a lot of the ending of 1984. <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> um, it felt, that, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, it felt like there wasn't much hope there. Um, throughout the book, maybe, but uh, the, uh, towards the end of it, or particularly the, the ending, um, am I wrong about that? I'd like to think I'm wrong about that. Um, well, I left it ambiguous for a reason. Um, I think that a book is a collaboration between a writer and a reader, and people bring all sorts of different things to it. Um, having said that, a couple of times people have approached me at readings and have, have expressed their delight that it had a happy ending, and I have found that surprising um, I, I haven't corrected them or, or said that's not how it is because that's not my place and I'm 
what I'm glad is glad of is that they've engaged with it and taken something away from it that matters to them. But it it has interested me um, that for a very small proportion of people, they think everything ends well. That is interesting. <laughs> um, perhaps this is taking that collaboration idea a bit too far, and this is probably way too pretentious. But um, for me, there, as an English Lit Theory graduate, <laughs> there was a real, or there is a real parallel between stories and texts, which are a collaboration between author and reader. So in a sense, they're cultivated and they're created and they're nurtured, but also in a sense the writer has to let go of control at some point and they become kind of organic and natural and they grow in their own ways. And a park, which is what lies itself at the very heart of clay, which is something that we see at the beginning, it being bulldozed and bulbs being planted and that sort of thing, which is cultivated and and nurtured by people, but also populated by wild creatures. And at the end of the day, the people who put the park there have to let go of control of it as well. Mm. Yes, and parks are something that keep cropping up in things that I write um, quite a lot. And in my second book, Hawthorne Time, um, there's not a park, but there is there is shared there is shared land. There's a village which is shared and has shared meanings. And I think um, I think you're right to pick up on that idea that it's a space in which you collaborate to create meaning. Um, I write quite a lot about my local common, Tooting Common, and there was a, a big debate that we had, um, you know, various park users recently about some graffiti that kept going up in the same place, and the council was spending a lot of money um, taking it off. And I said, um, I don't have a problem with it, actually. I think people interact with the park in different ways. It's not offensive graffiti. It's an urban park. This isn't, you know, um, the Lake District. It's, it's a... a crumbling wall next to a railway embankment why do we need to keep taking it off it's okay Mm. and the vitriol that this provoked um, was really interesting because uh, nobody was able to quite say what their problem with it was because I suspect their problem with it was actually um, not something they were quite ready to admit to themselves about who was doing it and about who had permission and who was allowed mm. and what kind of behaviours were, were sanctioned. Um, you know, things like, um, it, but it interrupts um, my enjoyment of the natural world. And I said, well, there's a children's play part that interrupts my appreciation of the natural world. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, people came up with this, this series of reasons and, and none of them held water. And I kind of tried to address them one by one. But it made me think a lot about um, who is and who isn't allowed to say how things are and how in um, shared space and in, and in art, the, the, the important thing to do is to allow all the meanings to exist concurrently with each other and um, to allow several things to be true at the same time. And I think that creates rich art. It stops the art you make being propaganda. Um, and it's a reason why... I find a lot of the wildlife and conservation conflicts at the moment very interesting and very tricky to navigate because um, although I know that it's important that we have people who are partisan on one side or another of any debate, I can't be one of those people Mm -hmm. because my job, the job that I have created for myself and that allows me to, to write 
the kind of books that I'm writing means that I need to understand multiple perspectives and to hold them all as potentially true at the same time. Um, and that means, it means tolerating doubt and uncertainty and it means um, being somebody that um, lots of people will disagree with and not allowing yourself the comforting certainty of sitting with a group of people who tell you you're right all the time and congratulate you for your right on opinions. So it means, again, perhaps being an outsider, which we were talking about before, but it, it, it allows me to, um, to create these worlds that, that I hope um, become an exercise in empathy and, ex and expanding of possibilities for people rather than shutting them down. I've gone off, off on a tangent there, but... It's a good tangent. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that... Um, do you think that empathy and that expanding of possibilities what what do you think the role of of that is and this comes comes back to something we were we were talking about before i started recording which is saving nature quote unquote what role do you think writing and art play if any in helping to protect save restore nature wildlife the natural world the environment um i think they can play an enormously key role i hope so anyway because otherwise um Everything that I'm doing is a bit pointless, um, but I think they, art and literature, artistic expression of all kinds, creativity is key for everything, all, all aspects of human society, because they are the conversation that we have with ourselves about who we are and what we're doing and why. Um, and whether you participate in the arts or, or not, whether you directly participate in the arts or not, um, this becomes part of um, our collective dreaming and our collective um, sense of self. And so to contribute to that in any way, I think, is, is, is hugely important. Um, when it comes to the natural world, um, not everyone will have the same approach as me. And, and as I say, it's really important that people, there are people who are really firmly taking one position or another. Um, for me, what I want people to do is engage with the questions rather than me give them the answers. So I want um, to try and um, introduce people to the world, the natural world, as I, as I, not as I see it. Um, I want to invite people into a world that is potentially richer and more complex than they knew before. And that sounds patronising, and I don't mean it to. I mean that um, we all grow up in, in quite um, small universes, the universe of our family and the things that our family are interested in and the places our family goes and art is a way of expanding that art, you know it's a way of um, finding out about people we didn't know before questions that we haven't asked um, decisions that are, need to be made that we, we didn't know other people were making on our behalf um, and I want to allow people to engage with those questions and, and those worlds um, 
in a way that is that involves their emotions. Um, I want people to care. I want people to ask the question about: Is it okay if we cut down, um, you know, the nation's forests? Um, perhaps the knee-jerk reaction is: Well, that's bad because trees and trees are nice. That's one of the narratives. Um, another narrative is that we've got huge amounts of um, conifer plantations that aren't hugely biodiverse um, and are uneconomic to fell and perhaps we could replace them with broadleaf woodlands and then perhaps we could coppice those woodlands and treat them as a crop in the way that we used to and that would be better. Um, or perhaps we should be getting rid of some broadleaf woodland and restoring it to heath. I mean, you know, the, it's like fractals. You, you go in and it becomes more and more complicated. Um, and you can introduce people to those concepts intellectually, but they can be quite meaningless. Um, I hope that what I and others are doing is introducing people to those ideas in a way that engages their emotions, because I think when you do that, people become committed to finding an answer themselves. Mm. And that's, that's what I would like. I think you do, and I think, um, I think that with clay and with rain also um, but particularly with clay because it's in an urban setting and it's somewhere where we don't necessarily think of there being much wildlife or nature around us um, you take you take that setting and in very very small details described in very eloquent and beautiful and evocative ways um, you connect people to or you connect the reader or the characters to the nature and the wildlife that is actually around them and particularly the the character of TC, the child who has this instinctive love of wildlife, but as we've discussed, pushes up against society's boundaries and rules because of that. Do you think that disconnection, that simple disconnection from nature, particularly for children, is one of the biggest problems facing nature and or facing people? Yes, it does worry me a great deal. I think that um, I think that most children do have an instinctive affinity for the natural world um, and I think that for a lot of children it's lost in their teenage years as it was for me um, you know it was something that I moved away from but if you uh, haven't been allowed to develop that relationship or haven't been able to develop that relationship as a child um, it, it isn't there for you to go back to and I think um, that developing a relationship as an adult is if, Far from impossible, but it's harder mm. because it isn't imbued with that sense of magic that we talked about earlier. That sense of these special places that that are connected to your childhood and that and that are um, luminous almost. Um, so yes, I think that helping parents to allow their children that kind of childhood it, it would be a, a wonderful. Um, legacy to leave. I'm a non-parent and I can't begin to imagine how it can be done because you can talk all you like about the fact that child abduction rates haven't actually gone up since the 1960s and you know things like that but it, it, the emotional heft of 24-hour rolling news and you know we can all quote children who have been harmed is not something you can argue people out of, and, and nor should you try. Um, there are some really useful initiatives going on in the States. There's the Free Range Kids movement, which was started by a mother who wanted her child to be able to go to the park and play um, by himself. I think it was a little boy. And so she um, 
she got together lots of other mothers and said, you, you send your child as well, we'll all send our children, we'll give them a wristwatch. They can have an hour and a half, teach them how to tell the time, they come back at the same time. So they're there together, so you get rid of the, pro you know, the, the problem of kids being by themselves. Mm -hmm. And the movement really took off. She got uh, an enormous amount of flack for it. Um, I believe she got death threats at one point for, you know, um, child cruelty. And there was a, a case here a few years ago where two children in London were allowed to walk to school together. And um, the uh, social services were called. Um, and, and that, you know, is, is, is a bit horrifying. Um, as I say, I don't know how to solve it, but I think that um, making it part of the, the, the question, the conversation that we're having, which it, it is becoming at the moment, is, is about as much as any of us can do. We need to find a way around it collectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about um, Rain as well, your book about four walks that you take in the rain. Yes. Um, and uh, well, I wanted to ask a few things about it. I suppose I wanted to start by asking why... Um, why you chose to write it and why you feel it's important that why you feel it's important that we experience the landscape in in kind of all its states and mm. in the state that some of us kind of you know run away and hide inside from yeah well um the the idea for the book came to me in the lake district um which is obviously quite a wet part of the country and i was there for a week and it was clearly going to rain every day and we weren't going to stay in so um I bought some waterproof trousers, and you know I've, I've got a coat and boots and everything. We bought a little coat for the dog, and we went out and walked, and it was wonderful. Um, you know, waterproof clothes these days are very efficient and affordable, um, and there was hardly anyone else around, which was a treat. And I felt as though I was seeing a different side to the landscape, um, one that I hadn't been granted before. And I realised that this huge library I have of, of books about landscape and countryside, most of them take place in fair weather. And, you know, there's reasons for that, and that's fine. But we are, we're, you know, we are islands with quite changeable weather. <laughs> so the portrait that we have didn't quite seem, um, didn't quite seem representative. So I, I thought I'd try and correct that. Um, and it also struck me that if you only go out for walks in fair weather, if you love the landscape and you, you, just, you just see it when it's sunny, it's like um, only listening to music in a major key. I mean, why would you, why would you not? Why would you? Why? Why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it was, it was that and it was a feeling of, um, as I was saying earlier, kind of resilience. You know, I'm going to set out. I'm going, you know, I do a lot of walking by myself as well, and, and there's a similar feeling of, do you know what, I'm, I'm just going to do stuff, you know, and yeah, it might be a bit weird, I might get lost, I like to walk in the dark, you know, and people say, oh, but I'd be scared, and I think, well, sometimes I'm scared, but I'll do it anyway, and it's, for me, you know, I don't want to live any other way, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do things, not do things out of, out of fear or, or uncomfortableness. Yeah. If you if you want to have a relationship with with place and with landscape, then I think that really has to be part of it. I really agree. Um, it's not really comparable, but I read your article about walking. Is it the A twenty five? 
over four days? The A5, yeah. A5. And I walked up part, a section of it, and that was research for um, at Hawthorne time. One of the characters walks from London to um, Shropshire. So I walked a section of it, and that was brilliant um, and terrifying and strange, um, partly because I couldn't walk across countryside in, in a way that I had thought I would. I thought I'd, I didn't mean to walk along the road, but I thought the road would be my guide and I'll walk you know, through the land on one side or other. And um, you can't do that. You know, I'm used to walking in places like Dartmoor and the Lake District in yeah. Scotland, the places where you have open access. And it was all paddocks and fields and you know, storage depots or whatever. So, um, so then I tried walking along the road, but there's no, no pavements or anything. And it's a lorry route, so that was pretty um, taxing. And frightening. Um, so I had to strike off, off cross country, um, and that was frightening because I don't have the best sense of direction in the world. Although I'm, a, I'm a, an excellent map reader, probably because I try so hard because my instincts are not good. Um, and it was great. Um, you know, once I'd made that decision, uh, the countryside opened up, and I stumbled on all sorts of things like two men unloading a a lorry full of hooky goods um, <laughs> in the wood, which was a little bit frightening, especially as I then couldn't get out of the, the field I was walking through. And I had to go back and I had to ask them directions and I just thought, well, this is the moment where I get killed. Um, and I found a human grave as well on the side of the M1, um, which was, uh, which I never would have found had I not been on foot. Um, and that's really interests me and, and is something that I may I may come back to it, may write about, but it was, um, you know, it had a name and dates, and it was on a scrap of land. Um, how did that come about? You know, mm. that's fascinating. There is something, I mean, like I said, it's not really comparable, but there is something a bit kind of... So me and my brother grew up in, like, suburban Worcestershire, um, and when we were a bit older, sort of in our late teens, and we, we were allowed to, like, go out and do stuff. Yeah. We were finally not children anymore. Um Often we would choose to like walk the three and a half miles along kind of country lanes, but that lorries went along rather than be given a lift by yeah. our parents. Because there is something quite nice about connecting with the land and forcing yourself to walk in yes. that way. But also you realise how not set up. Mm. <laughs> Unless yeah. you're kind of on a public footpath that's designed for people to walk along through fields or whatever or through woods. Yeah. Um, the rest of the landscape is not not set up for people to yeah, to right. travel like that anymore. That's right. And we've just become used to seeing um, places through the window of a car. And that is... Uh, I, it, it can feel as though we're seeing England or wherever we are. But I don't think we are. Um, mm. It was such a different experience being on foot. Um, you know, partly because... Partly just through sensory experience of the fact that you're going slowly and you're tired and you know you're, you're, you're doing it with, 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 with feet and, and body and breath but also um, you notice things like streams and small hills and boggy bits you notice the topography in a way that the car just erases for you that was the thing I think the road that we always used to walk along which was to my grandparents house was a road that we'd been driven along all our lives and the first time we walked it they're just umpteen things which we were like we've been driving along this road for 17 years or whatever it's about two miles of road and there's just so many things we never knew were here before yeah so imagine um, how people how people experienced place before 
cars. It, it's mm. almost unimaginable. Mm. Um, there are so many things that I wanted to ask. Um, I don't want to run out of time. Um, I think I... So I also, I also wanted to ask about... Um, obviously, you cover four kind of places in rain through the four different walks. One of them is actually not that far from where I live now, which is Wiccan right. in Cambridgeshire. Um, and my girlfriend actually works there at the moment. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and you write about that post in somewhere in the Fens that has been slowly revealed yeah, over time yeah. so it's by... Like 18 metres or something above... Something crazy. Some, yeah, maybe not that much, but it's... Yeah, it's very tall now. Um, the peach trunk away. And then at the back of rain, you've got that glossary of different terms for basically different kinds of rain, which is like, is it a hundred words, right? Yes. Um, yeah. I, I feel like I, f- I feel like in your writing, there's lots of like you manage to pull together different threads of time almost happening simultaneously. Interesting. Um, and that creating that connection between the present and the past is quite important as well. Yes. Um, Certainly in Hawthorne time, the landscape that I was trying to um, bring into being was one that was uh, very richly layered. Um, So I was trying to get in... I remember reading about um, how you can see where walnut trees used to be planted because the soil is black from the tannins from the walnuts that have dropped onto the soil. And that these patches of black soil often indicate um, a farmhouse because... Farmers would plant a walnut tree near the farmhouse to provide shade for the horses because the uh, walnut tree kept flies away. And so you, suddenly you have this amazing depth of meaning from finding a, p- a patch of blackened soil and things like nettles, um, you know, growing where there was a midden, um, and old, you know, prayer walks in vicarage gardens, and just the, the, the layers, the layers of landscape history and, and landscape archaeology that. that make up a country like this which is so you know um, densely worked and and again it's this thing about meaning isn't it about you know somebody's back garden can have a thousand meanings that you can pick up and try and isolate but that actually come together to create something something else so yes I I try and capture that all the time that sense Mm. of the deep past and the recent past you zoom in um I think it's the final Dartmoor walk in rain. You zoom in on like one square meter of land and the millions of fungi and bacteria. Which you can... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, and 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 I think the um, those sort of zoom zooms in and zooms out again. Perhaps come back to uh, to Brian Carter, who was very good at that. Um, he's very good at, at sort of almost panning out, almost cinematically from from a, a scene he was writing. Um, so that suddenly you see it from a great distance or it, or it focuses in um, like a camera and you get that sense of, of so many different layers of life existing at the same time and with equal meaning. I find that really important and really moving. Um, are there any, besides, apart from those four walks, are there any other places that are particularly meaningful to you or any particular experiences, experiences with wildlife that you've had? Uh, well, funnily enough, last week I went on a glowworm walk to uh, Hillingdon, um, which I've I've written about for this weekend's newspapers. Um, who knew there were there were glowworms that you could get to on the Metropolitan Line? <laughs> I mean, what an amazing thing! And it's it's uh, Cycle Phrase Farm Meadows, um, which is, as we've just been saying, actually a really interesting site that's. Um, it was gravel pits that were then flooded and then some have been turned over to nature um, some are still fished 
there's a railway embankment that bisects the site that's owned by somebody else, but is the site where the glowworms are because it's got a high calcium, which creates the snails that the glowworm larvae need to live on. Um, there's a couple of nature reserves and part of there's a meadow part of which is an SSSI. It's all threatened by HS2. The whole thing it's like a it's like a mosaic of of, um, of ownership and history and meaning. And on this spine running through it, this railway embankment, um, it just lit up with glowworms. And I went on this walk. It was um, me and three local um, wildlife trust volunteers. Um, and then I, I was wondering who else is going to come. And I've done these things before, and it's usually um, it's usually people of retirement age, mm. and sometimes um, parents with kids. And there were three girls in their mid-twenties, one of whom was phobic about wildlife and had come along with her friends to try and get over this. And two young lads, uh, one 17 and one 22, um, who had heard about it on Twitter. <laughs> and we were all absolutely transfixed. From the moment we found the first one, it was just a line of people crouched in the grass, transfixed and joy-struck by these tiny little points of light that... I think most people think that they're extinct, or some people think that they're only in America, but they're still here. You know, they've declined enormously, but they're, they're clinging on. And to see them in midsummer, they, it's just an animal making its own light. What you know? <laughs> what do you do with that? It's extraordinary. Um, so that was that was really uh, really magical. I, I was hoping we'd see them, but I didn't know it would be it would feel like that. Yeah, they are pretty mind blowing. I've seen them out in the wilds of the Suffolk coast but never anywhere urban before but they're just absolutely incredible yeah I mean there was the A4 Western Avenue thundering <laughs> along next to us you know the, the, and, the, and the Grand Union Canal on the other side it was yeah very very urban landscape I went on a walk um, a couple of weeks ago around the Lee Valley that the people on that also blew my mind so it was organised by a guy on behalf of the Anti-University which runs every year in commemoration of the 1960s Paris student protests. Wow. Um, and kind of commemorates the idea of learning as something which is shared amongst people rather than handed down from Ooh, the, the academic to the learners. Yeah. Um, and this guy was running it. He's a birder, but he ran it on behalf of the anti-university. And besides myself, everyone who came along on it uh, had never birdwatched before. And he did it as a birds and politics walk. Wow. <laughs> like spent it. the whole time talking about like radical Leninist politics and that sort of thing and how he thought that birds, um, you know, birds symbolise the, the power of the masses against the power of, um, you know, the autocracy or whatever. Wow. Um, I was spending sounds, more. That sounds brilliant. It was amazing. And he got such a diverse, non-interested in wildlife well, group of people doing it. Because I think, you know, one of my gripes with the conservation movement, although, you know, I... I I love them, I love all of them, um, is that it can end up uh, people who like nature talking to other people who like nature. And um, I've been to quite a lot of events and talks and conferences and things now. And it's a lot of, um, it's very well-meaning, and I don't, I don't mean it as a criticism, but people come away from it feeling very good about the work they're doing. That is important, but there, there's a huge number of people out there who, who don't know and don't care, and the reason they don't care is because they don't know, and who also feel that um, the world of, of nature is a closed group where um, people are all experts and you have to know what everything is, mm. and 
one of the things that I try very hard to do, and I did in, in particularly in Rain, was to say when I don't know something, and to bring into the work um, the experience of doubt. So the problem, not, not necessarily a problem, but I, I think what can happen with nature writing and nature writers is that you, you go on your walk that you're going to write about and a bird flies past and when you write it up, what you write is, and there was a, a white throat whizzed past my ear and sat on a horn book, thorn bush and, and sang. And what you don't write is that you weren't sure what it was and you got out your phone, you had a look and your phone wasn't very clear about <laughs> it. So you tried to take a picture but the picture was a bit blurry so you phoned a friend and all of that process of, of, of doubt gets elided because, of course, you want to make a smooth narrative. And that's fine because you do end up with a smooth narrative. But everyone then appears like an expert. Yeah. And do you know what? There are some experts. There are some, there are some nature artists who absolutely know their stuff. But there are a lot of people who are learning, like me. And I think that's okay. Um, and I, more than that, I think there's a value in it, in having both those kinds of people. And especially if you can... Um, bring that into the work and, and allow people to see that, you know, I, I have people say to me, oh, uh, how did you know what that bird was? I, I can never, I can't do any bird song. And I say, well, three years ago, neither could I. I've, I've learned. And, and you can too, because that's how you interest people. Not, not by it being a, a closed group of, of people who are all mm. talking about Latin names and upupu pops and, you know, being quite <laughs> pleased with each other. And you can't get in. How can you get in? Yeah. <laughs> That's very Although true. The hoopoo pops is just the best Latin bird name ever. Which one's that? Uh, that's the hoopoo. Oh, is that hoopoo? And it's got, it, even better, it's got a flea on it that's something like upupura popsicae or something, which is just, just fantastic. Um, but yes, that's probably the only Latin name I know. <laughs> um, uh, probably is almost a final question. Do you have any advice for young or emerging people interested in nature or people interested in becoming in writing or people interested in combining the two besides everything you've just said in the past 50 <laughs> minutes <laughs> um i don't uh do any workshops or teaching or um i say no to to doing articles of writing tips and things like that because um I feel quite strongly that you either do it or you don't. And um, reading someone else's tips and list of advice, it, it, it can only do you a disservice because it will um, divert you from finding out how you do it yourself. And there is no shortcut to that. It, you know, I was miserable when I wasn't writing all of the things I read about oh get up at six in the morning or do this or do that were useless to me so I had to, I had to do it myself I had to find a way and I might not have found a way and that would have been a shame but that's just how it is mm. you know the things that work for you are the things that work for you and they may or may not be of any use to anyone else you're either going to get your shit together and do it or you're not so I don't I don't tend to do writing tips um, for that reason um, that's right. I think that's a good piece of advice in itself. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you heard a nightingale yet? No, it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's breaking my heart. Uh, I, I mean, I, it, I'm being silly. I could very easily have this year 
just said to one of my proper birder friends, take me to here and I to go. I could have done that. But I have this stubborn thing and I want to do it myself. <laughs> and I don't want to be taken to it. I want to find it. And I, this is what I need to do. Um, I'm particularly trying to hear one at Bookham Common because it's near where I grew up. It's, uh, I, I went to, to school in Bookham. And until recently they had 16 singing males. Um, I found out this year when I rang the warden that they only had one, and they only had one last year, which was when I was trying as well. Right. Um, but he said to me this year, he said, because he lives in a cottage on the site, and he said, I can hear it from my living room. So I went, and this is, you know, getting a train after work, getting there about eight, half past eight in the evening. Um, and I walked all around his cottage. I don't know what he thought was going on. I was <laughs> basically snooping in the woods. And... Um, and nothing went up, went three times this year and four times last year at dusk. And you know, warblers all over the place, amazing song thrushes, just astonishing bird song, wonderful evenings, but no nightingale. Mm -hmm. There was a, a moment um, just before I left uh, the last time I was there this year when I, I came across a proper birder, he looked like a proper birder to me with his bins and his you know, waistcoat with all the pockets and stuff. And I was standing listening to what I knew, I knew was a song thrush, but there was, uh, you know, it was getting to the point where I was going to have to leave and I was trying to convince myself. And he walked up and we stood there for a minute in silence and then we looked at each other and he just shook his head. And I, was, I just shook my head and then we, we didn't say anything else. <laughs> it was just sort of a moment of, nah, nah. <laughs> and that was it and we left it. So maybe next year. Okay, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I did hear a cuckoo though. Oh, nice. So that was good. That is good. <laughs> yeah, in Bookham. Oh, excellent. That's really good. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to stop there. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say before we finish? Um, no, I don't think so. I think we did quite well. <laughs> we did do quite well. Thank yes, you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Peace.